tip today in association with Slattery's of Pecan, your main Peugeot dealer for over 50 years in the Premier County. Slattery'sGarage.ie Legal discussion on tip today is brought to you in association with Lynch Solicitors Clan Mel on the web at lynchsolicitors.ie and at divorceinireland.com. And welcome back to Tip Today and I'm delighted to be joined in studio by John Lynch of Lynch Solicitors. Good morning, John. Uh, good morning. Uh, we were talking succession and wills last week and uh, we didn't quite get, we didn't get didn't to quite the through wills. it. No, we didn't no, get no, to the we wills. didn't get to the wills. But I mean, the funny thing is, I wouldn't be too worried about that. I'd, a lot of people don't get to the wills. <laughs> so despite the fact that you'd be telling people and everybody would agree you should do them, it's quite incredible how many people don't mm-hmm. do them, you know. But... Funny, I prepared a booklet on, you know, transferring a business and one of the things we were talking about last week was all the things you can do in advance of making a will. But when you're making a will or the whole idea of making a will is only one of a number of things that you should be looking at, really, because there's kind of two phases in life. Uh, Hopefully, sometimes you, you certainly can't advise the last phase, which is when we pass on. Uh, but the middle phase of that could be that you may not be capable or you might have lost capacity towards the end of your life and or you may not be able to manage your affairs. Yeah. So what's kind of slotted into that is the whole enduring power of attorney scenario. And the enduring power of attorney effectively is that and almost all clients now when they're coming into us without with very few exceptions when you explain to them the importance of it will not not make one which is double negative anyway which they'd make uh, an enduring power of attorney and an enduring power of attorney effectively means that you nominate a a, another two others usually to kind of look after you so the looking after you can be either looking after you from a health perspective and or can look after you from a kind of a you know financial management kind of perspective as well so quite, quite, quite commonly, that's something that people deal with and address. Now, obviously, it's a bit like a will. You know, some people often ask, well, do I really need to make a will if I don't have anything? And I suppose the easy answer to that is no, you don't. And mm. if you have nothing, you don't need to, to will it because, you know, <coughs> if you name or that, quite not a habit, you know, you can't give what you don't have. Yeah. But if, um, if there are you know, things involved, you know, the family home, the bank account, the credit union account or whatever. But then in those circumstances, you do make a will. And the reason you make the will is that, look, anything planned is better than unplanned. And making a will is your ultimate plan, if you know what I mean. And so the same principle applies when you're doing an enduring power of attorney. If there is are things to manage and you know, there are always things to manage in terms of health, if you know what I mean. And the interesting other element to that is that you can do what they call an advanced care directive, which effectively is a statement of how you would like to be looked after in the event of something happening to you. And a lot of us, you know, when you get to a certain age, you're, you're quite happy to talk about this. You know, the younger they are, the less inclined you are to talk about it. But, you know, when you get to a certain age, you kind of realise and you will often say to yourself uh, that, look, if I was in a situation that, for example, I was involved in an accident or if I had a really disabling illness 
and if there were certain treatment options that were open to me. And one of the lines of treatment was keeping me alive, even though, if you like, my quality of life was minimal. Very poor, yeah. That you, with an advanced healthcare directive, you can indicate and dictate that, no, I don't want to go down that route. And I, it always brings me in mind of uh, uh, someone that I knew very, very well, whose wife had died from cancer some years pre- prior. And <clears throat> this poor man got cancer also. And he made the decision not to get involved in all of the treatment options that were out there that would have prolonged his life, but that because he had witnessed his wife going through the treatment option, he decided and made that decision. Now, he was in a position to make that decision when he made it, mm-hmm. but if he wasn't, if he had reached a point where he's no longer able to make that decision due to health reasons that under those circumstances an advanced healthcare directive would cover that scenario and that is something that again it's not within the legal arena it's more to do with your doctor and talking to your doctor about it but it is obviously another part of that pre-planning that you should be looking at when you're when you're dealing with the the whole idea of succession so but the other the other things when when I was looking at it and when I was preparing this booklet that I thought of, thought of as well in the context of succession because succession doesn't mean that you're gone if you know what I mean succession mm-hmm. could just mean that you're moving or changing direction because I hate that word retirement but it means you might be changing direction mm-hmm. you mightn't be you know involved in one business as, yeah anymore. or it might be as actively involved yeah, in business exactly. on a day-to-day basis so the other the other one that that kind of that i put into the booklet and i kind of smile when i think of it is 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 a prenuptial agreement mm-hmm. and the reason that, and i wondered when i put it in i said why did i put in a prenup but the reason i put in a prenup is that sometimes when you're in a family business situation and one of the members of the family who are a member of the business family as well may get married and in a situation like that you may want to try and have a you may and it's funny it's not an uncommon request that we get from family members for a family member a, a another family member to discuss the whole issue of prenups in the context of business relationship because obviously it is relevant so in terms of succession that's another one because in terms of of the other one that I think that that I did put in again broadly in the area of succession is the whole area of prenup agree or sorry of um, cohabitation agreements and they're ones that I thought would become very popular and they're rare I have to say that you'd have a cohabitation agreement or that clients would you know I might be proven wrong and that I might get a couple of calls after this show but um, it's rare enough that people actually look for cohabitation agreements I got an email actually in last week from I was kind of bemused by it or chuffed by it I'm not sure which, it was an email from a a, a legal secretary in a large firm, one of the largest firms of solicitors in the country who googled Solicitors and prenup agreements came up with our website. There you go. And sent us a query. <laughs> sent us a query about it. But this this uh, this query is is kind of right down the the line of succession because this lady had a, has a child 
um, and she's entering into another relationship and she, or rather she's been in another relationship for a period of time but the partner in the relationship is looking to move into her house so her query was uh, can you give me the bones of what's involved in a cohabitation agreement mm-hmm. so that if my partner moves in that I can secure if you like my daughter it was the daughter my daughter's succession rights vis-a-vis the house and in the context of you know would would if somebody lives with somebody for a period of time would there be issues around ownership of assets etc etc and the reality of that is you see that under the cohabitation legislation there are implications for a committed relationship that when you enter into a committed relationship, you're cohabiting. There are, uh, if you like, ramifications around that if somebody dies, number one, in the context of the relationship and or the relationship breaks up. So a cohabitation agreement was what the legislation envisaged being put in place to deal with that. And there's quite a lot of cohabiting people that don't have cohabitation agreements. And it's surprising to the extent that it's been legislated on, whereas a cohabitation, sorry, whereas a prenup agreement has not been legislated on, a cohabitation agreement has legislative force, if you know what I mean. So it has been recognised by the legal system, whereas prenup agreements are very much out there in terms of how enforceable they are. And the kind of the general consensus on a prenup agreement, because if you remember there a couple of months ago, I think the IFA were very much pushing the whole idea of you know legalising in the sense of formally legalising. Mm-hmm. And it's something they've kind of called for years, because yeah, in terms some, of farming yeah. passed down from generation exactly. to generation, and, and if a relationship breaks yeah, up. No, the beauty of that is that they've changed... Sorry, the court is giving a little bit more direction on it. I'm I'm sidelining here Mm -hmm. just for a second. But the courts have kind of given an indication in literally in the last, I'd say, is it four years or three or four years on the whole area of inherited assets? Mm -hmm. Because you see there's quite a lot of uncertainty around inherited assets there for at least 10 years Mm -hmm. since the divorce legislation came in. And the whole question was you know can you carve up the farm mm. and are inherited assets treated differently and in a supreme court decision i think it's three years ago in the supreme court decision the uh, actual the president the, sorry the chief justice who actually had given a decision 10 years previously uh, revisited it all again and reiterated what she said she had said 10 years before and everybody seemed to have ignored i.e. that inherited assets are treated differently mm-hmm. and that you can't look at an inherited asset in the same way as you look at an asset that's been built up during the course of a marriage with if you like the contribution of both parties and that I think has eased a little bit that uh, scenario. And did she base that interpretation on, on, on the legislation or no, she based it. Well, you see, because oh, the, because the legislate no. no, she based it on her reading of what she thought the legislation should be read like. Mm-hmm. Because you see, if you take that, if you were to open the divorce legislation and or the judicial re- legislation and look at it at all, but judicial separation legislation, they're very similar. But if you just open the divorce act and you go down to the, to a section of the Act. When you go down to a section of the Act, that section of the Act says, 
here are the things you take into account, i.e. here are the things that the court should take into account when they're dealing with divorce. Yeah. So it lists things and it goes and it starts at the top and goes, well, you look at how long the marriage, you look at how long the relationship, you look how much income, earning capacity both parties have, you look at the assets that both parties have, you look at the contributions that both parties make, you look at the assets that are that are generated during the course of the marriage and etc etc so you go down to a long list of criteria well it's i think it's 26 criteria that you look at i could be wrong now but you that's you look at a number of criteria but you see because our system because our legal system is very much dependent on how you interpret the law in other words the court function is to go and look at that list of criteria and go well okay what does that mean what does that mean what does that mean Mm -hmm. so they give meaning to the section by interpreting it and the section the kind of cornerstone to the section is that it starts with kind of you know these kind of almost mantras but it starts with the mantra you must be fair and just yeah yeah. okay and it then goes on to you must be fair and just in making proper provision for all parties so where the courts get into the interpretation side of it is what does fair mean what does just mean and what does proper provision mean and it's in therein lies the robe, if you like, because mm-hmm. what the Supreme Court, which is our highest court, started to tell the lower courts after maybe about six or seven years of interpreting these sections, it said, listen, lads, you have to start telling Joe Bloggs when you're giving a decision on proper provision, how you used and applied all these kind of criteria that we've that the legislation gave you so you must be able to say well this is why i did it because of the contribution made by a or this is why i did it because of the assets so within all of that mix if you like came the question how do you do windfalls you know in other words let's say you have a situation where the parties separate mm-hmm. and one of them goes in i actually had one of these cases one of them goes in and buys a lotto ticket and the next thing they win. They win the lotto. How do you deal with that? Mm. And that's not covered in the section, if yeah. you know what I mean. And then the next one that you have is, what do you do where one of the parties brings a substantial amount of assets to the marriage and the other party doesn't? How do you treat that? That's the inherited assets mm. scenario. So they they were questions of interpretation, but they were very practical ones. They were they weren't going to be get, you weren't going to have a situation where the law was going to say in the case of inherited assets, this is what you do. Yeah. So we had to wait for the courts to to do that. I mean, I, just as an aside, I had a very interesting case a couple of years ago, where a client came in to me referred from down the country somewhere and uh, a really uh, not so interesting scenario but uh, not married um, in a relationship living together for quite a period of time both contribute their income into a family pot etc etc two children and uh, used to buy the lotto every Friday or the lotto ticket every, every Friday and one would buy it, whoever would, one or other would buy it on the way home. Uh, one of the parties bought the lottery ticket. They were sitting at home the weekend, uh, all sitting around, it was kind of a family affair. Number comes up, won, the, won it. 
uh, and then the the headed off all family kids and uh, parents headed off to Dublin had a great celebration uh, uh, this is kind of fictionalizing it a little bit but uh, had a great celebration uh, went out enjoyed the win etc got the check and um, the on the way home or sorry about to head home one of the parties one of the one of the adults said to the other one I, I won't go home I'll you know I'll follow you down then bang solicitor's letter arrives in this is my lotto ticket these are my lotto or whatever I would oh it was God. in the name of the person it was in the name of the person who wasn't going home if you know what I mean so we had to issue high court proceedings injuncting the payment of the funds etc etc but uh, join the conversation in Tipperary contact us through Facebook Twitter or email tiptoday at tipfm.com Welcome back to Tip Today with myself, Trudy Waters. Uh, and John, you have a couple of uh, case files. Yeah, I'm going at. to run very quickly mm. at them because I, I downloaded, um, I downloaded, as you know, I get cases every week and I looked at a couple of cases and I thought these might be interesting and I downloaded them all. And when I downloaded them all, I, I without realising it, it was the same judge that dealt with each one of the cases. Mm. And the interesting thing about them is they're all kind of fairly standard litigation type cases and two of them I think uh, she dismissed the claims and in the other ones they one of them was an unusual one to succeed and well look let me be specific here one of the cases that she dealt with was where somebody was was visiting from Australia they were Australian Irish I think but they were coming home and they went into the National Gallery and they walked, you know those big sweeping steps in mm. the National Gallery? They were walking down, the, the couple were walking down the steps and he fell on towards the bottom of the stairs and went head over, over heels, etc. and had fairly serious injuries and sued them. But the, the one of the kind of, the... One of the points that they made was that we have a million and a half visitors coming down these steps every, every year, year, so therefore mm. how can you say we're negligent? And the judge said, that's not relevant. You know, the fact that, you know, the fact that you have a danger that nobody actually, if you like, succumbs to mm-hmm. it doesn't make it not dangerous, yeah, if you know what I mean. Because all of the engineering evidence that was there was that it was the steps were not safe Mm -hmm. and that they had become you know the old shiny with no nosing on them whatever they were a trip hazard and it was accepted that they were a trip hazard and but one of the things that she said which I thought was was again you know the way you look for a little bit of a kind of a a gem every now and then and this I I think this is a gem I don't know whether your listeners will agree because whenever I find a bit of Latin I think what does that mean and the Latin (laughs) that she used was maxim omnia uh, presumptor contra spoliatum and I said what the sweet mother of God is that Um, and what that is is what happened in this particular case was, and where she found it, I don't know, I presume she looked it up in some legal textbook, uh, but what it was was that because there was CCTV footage, right, in that area, mm-hmm. but because the National Museum didn't retain it, even though there was an accident reported, even though, 
you know, this person was there and had fallen and they completed all that and somebody, you know, so... so they, report, they knew it happened. Yeah. They had written up a report on it. They had CCTV and they didn't, they didn't hold on to it. But not only did they not hold on to it, but the guy who could have given evidence about what he saw on it, they didn't call him as a witness. Now... You might, as a plaintiff, as the if you were, if I was acting for the fellow who fell down the stairs, mm-hmm. who's called the plaintiff, if I was acting for him, I'd be going, now well, hold up here a second, boys. How can you lose CCTV mm-hmm. where you're contesting liability, where you're saying there's no liability? Because you see, they spent, and I might exaggerate this, but they spent a couple of days cross-examining asking questions of this man from Australia who fell down the steps mm-hmm. about how he fell. Did you fall on your left side, your right side? Did you cut, topple over? Yeah. How come your leg was this way? And how come? The, so they spent quite a long time cross-examining him, trying to make out that he didn't really fall the way he said he fell. Yeah. OK? And the judge said, OK, lads. Right. So she found that lovely little uh, maxim, a legal maxim, and she said, well, because you didn't retain the footage, CCD footage, and not only did you not retain it, but you didn't even call the guy who saw it. Under those circumstances, I'm not going to allow you to question his evidence as to how he said he fell. Because he said, I was walking down along, my wife was in front of me. As I got towards the end of the steps, I just slipped, fell over to the left-hand side, and I crashed and broke my my hip on the left or whatever. And uh, so she said... All of this evidence, all this cross-examination you did was absolutely uh, of no value because you were uh, of this presumption, which I'm going to use if I ever get a chance. I'm certainly going to use that one. So that was that was that was it. And she found and she found that despite the argument that, look, a million and a half people go down this, those steps. That uh, wasn't good enough. That wasn't good no. enough because, you know, at the end of the day, it's the same as in medical negligence, for example. If you're in a medical negligence scenario and the doctor says, well, I've done it like that for the last... thousand times, yeah. ...however many years, and or if your sister says, well, I've done it like that, and everybody does it like that, that's not sufficient in itself to do it. So that was that one. And there was another one, and she, she had another judgment, and she had quite a number of judgments, actually, the ones that I have here. Um, she had a number of judgments against the local authorities. Now, you may remember, well, I don't expect you to remember, but when you're dealing with the local authority and when you're dealing with a road or a footpath or a laneway or anything that's in charge of the local authority, and what I mean by that is that, you know, your roads are under the control of the NRA, the mm-hmm. National Roads Authority. They used to be under the control of the local authorities, if you know what I mean, but the national routes are all NRA. But your 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 roads down through your town or your footpaths or whatever, they're all managed and controlled by the local authority. So I've often walked up and down the town, as I, anybody who knows me knows, I walk up and down the mm-hmm. town as much as I can, uh, mainly because I obviously love the town, but no, mainly because that's how I get to the office. Mm-hmm. But the thing about it is that I often trip. I often, when you're walking along the footpath, you'll sometimes kind of stumble and mm-hmm. go over because of these little lips that are created. And the question that might often doesn't cross my mind because I know the answer, but the question that will often arise is, is there, if there's a trip hazard, you know, 
can you succeed against the local authority? Now, if I'm inside in your house, by the way, and there's a trip hazard in your house and you know about it and you do nothing about it, as an occupier, you have a responsibility not to create a danger like that. Uh, I actually have one outside my office that I warn everybody about when they walk out of the office because it's a slight little, slight, yeah. like, slight little drop. Yeah. You know, and if they're coming in, they could tub their toe yeah. and, and I've had... Uh, I've had clients but I've anticipated it kind of you know just coming and they could and it is a trip hazard and mm. I should do something about it I, I not just warn but I should sort it now I put mm. a little ramp on it but anyway that's an aside that doesn't necessarily help it either but in this particular these cases that I'm talking about there was one one that kind of stuck out a little bit because it was and this is down to the whole area of how critical it is to have your evidence right you know somebody is involved in an accident and uh, you know the question is is there a liability or is there not a liability the importance of good engineering evidence somebody goes and looks at what's involved because in this particular case what happened was that the argument was that the reason that there was a lip had nothing to do with bad workmanship it had to do with the fact that there was a tree nearby and the tree caused it so and again another another little latin one novus actus interveniens is a principle of law that says that you are not liable as a defendant person defending a case if another act intervenes Mm. so in other words if it wasn't as a direct result of what you did so in this case, the Novus Actus Interveniens would be the tree, be the tree. if you like, the roots, of the, tree. the roots yeah. of the tree. Exactly. It, it brings me in mind of a case that I had where a bakery was sued for bread that was gone mouldy. And my defence was Novus Actus Interveniens. And the Novus Actus Interveniens was the fact that the shop owner allowed the, the bread to be out of time. So in other words, when you look at the back of the package, it was about three weeks over. Mm. And by the time it was, it was sold, it was sold out of time. So there was an intervening act that was the reason for, for the, bed being the moldy up. bread yeah. in this yeah. particular instance. So again, the trip and fall scenario here, what the law is very clear, and that is that if due to poor workmanship initially, either in the construction of the footpath and or the repair of the footpath, there is a danger. Under those circumstances, there is a liability. If if there's nothing, if, let's say, the footpath was constructed properly day one, and if, let's say, it falls into disrepair, you have no cause of action there, which is your classic pothole scenario. You know, is that pothole there because of wear and tear? If it is, unfortunately, drive around the pothole and be (laughs) careful of it. If it's there because somebody tries to fix it and fix it badly, which is often a scenario that, you know what I mean, that the local authority might go and try and fix it and then fixes it in a way that doesn't actually work. But there was... There was another case uh, that she was... So in that particular case, she uh, found against the local authority in each instance because she considered that there was a danger there and therefore there was what we call misfeasance rather than nonfeasance, which is, mm-hmm. again, another... This seems to be the Latin programme. So that was it. That, that's it. That's, I'll, I'll leave you at that. Oh, brilliant. Thank you very much. I've, there, is, there is one more... Uh, one that I read, which which was interesting insofar as she dismissed the case. Mm-hmm. But 
in dismissing the case, she made the comment that the defendants uh, behaved themselves very badly. She called it litigation misbehaviour. And how she called it litigation misbehaviour was that she suggested that they failed to respond to the claim that was made. They did nothing about it. They didn't call any witnesses and they allowed the plaintiff to present their case. Now, the interesting thing about it was she dismissed the case because when she looked at the other side of the coin, she looked at the case that was being presented and, you know, it was a, it was a classic case that you kind of ask yourself. I've often said to you, you know, people have often asked me the question, you know, do you just, if somebody comes into you, do you just take the case and uh, just proceed mm-hmm. and let the court make the decision? And the answer is no, you don't. You make a preliminary assessment as to whether or not there is a case or not. Now, sometimes, and I've, it has happened, that you, know, you run a case and you're not familiar or, you, or some fact becomes known during the course of the case that's highly relevant and you know for, for a fact, no pun intended, that this is a fact that should be known to the other side. Yeah. So, for example, the classic is prior accidents. But the one that was relevant in one of her cases was a subsequent accident. So Joe Bloggs takes his case. He has a, an accident afterwards. Mm-hmm. And that accident is resolved, settled and compensation page, yeah. but that's not notified in the current proceedings. Mm-hmm. Under the rules that we have at the moment, and again, it comes back to a question that I've often been asked, you know, how many claims or how many cases do you have, would you say, that are, you know, fraudulent cases? And the answer is minimal, mm-hmm. none yeah. uh, that you would be involved in. That you, would. But there's many a case that will fall foul of failure to disclose or inconsistencies that can literally kind of trip somebody up at hearing. I've had cases where, you know, because somebody without unwittingly sometimes won't disclose the fact that they had, let's say, psychiatric illness 20 years ago or something because mm-hmm. they're embarrassed about it or that they had a similar type incident. But unfortunately that will come against them in under the current proceedings they didn't so, declare it. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But sometimes that might not be the client's fault sometimes mm-hmm. and I think there is a responsibility on the lawyers to kind of ask the question mm-hmm. and make sure that the person is aware of it. So to, to a certain extent I often say to clients they need to take ownership of their own case mm-hmm. so you need to know that when you issue the paperwork you and you're sent a copy of it to look at it that you read it. And if you don't understand it, and by the way, that's another little bugbear that I have, is a lot of legal documents that yeah. are very hard to understand. Yeah. If you don't understand ask. it, come in and ask. ask. Absolutely. Know, John, important. I'm sorry, I'm well against the clock there. I'm going to have to let it go. Uh, John Lynch, listeners, thank you so much.